Hello and welcome to the Comedian's Paradise. This is a podcast where we speak to tantalizing, scintillating, creative characters from across the globe that will fascinate us, intrigue us like a novel. If you like this podcast, share it with your friends, subscribe on this fantastic journey and give us a five-star review on Amazon or iTunes. Now today's awesome guest is the brilliant Colin Legger. Now he is a man who is a punmeister. He is a man, if you've seen The Chicken Connoisseur on YouTube, this man is like that, but he is that for Cornwall. He goes into trying different Cornish dishes and he leaves a lovely poetic review. He's a man who has many stories and he is someone that you're not going to forget at all. Let's speak to Colin. Hello. Hi. I'm I'm just sat here being tantalising. I like the fact I got into... into, into uh, I was tantalising. I've never been called tantalising before. <laughs> Good. Yeah. <laughs> what yeah. You can use that for Edinburgh, but I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. On a poster, Marvin says I'm tantalizing. <laughs> oh, it, it would be. I wonder if Stephen Bennett has ever used it as a review, tantalizing. I, I doubt it. I doubt it. I mean, um, yeah, tantalizing. It, I mean, if, if, if an act is tantalizing, are they just. Because that's what I would. I usually use that word for food. So maybe mm. they're like a tasty tasty act i don't know i don't know anything can happen in edinburgh food they might even have food in their comedy people do don't yeah they? i mean i don't know i mean i i it would be interesting to see someone just give everyone cornish pasties throughout the whole gig or give them a curry with none bread throughout the, whole <laughs> the problem with that is a cornish pasty if you get a good one and a big cornish pasty like we have down here in Cornwall, the audience will be asleep within 10 minutes. They are a, a coma-inducing meal. You eat one of those and you've got heartburn and need a nap. <laughs> so that wouldn't be good for comedy. <laughs> oh, shit. <laughs> but it, it, it might, well, if, if Steve Bennett falls asleep, he says what happens, just say it was amazing, mate. <laughs> tantalising, Steve. Put that in your notebook. Five stars tantalising. <laughs> but it's great to have you on here, uh, Colin. Like, tell us a bit about what what made you become a tantalising and creative comic. <laughs> well, um, why did I want to do comedy? I start. I mean, I'm old. I had a birthday the other day, and I was. I just. I felt old the other day. I've been doing comedy for twenty four years now. And I started in my last year. So anyone who's good at maths can work out how old I am. Um, just a bit about that. I went into an art shop the other day and I'm, I'm trying to give this pencil set that I got when I was 14. I want to pass it on to my stepdaughter now. There's a few pencils missing from this like 72-piece 72 pencil set. We took it to an art shop and I said, I want to buy these like pencils that are missing. And they said, uh, you can't do that because they're now vintage. <laughs> I just feel so old. that My pencil set is vintage. Uh, anyway, so yeah, I've been doing comedy for a long time. Why did I start doing it? Well, I was at university and I'd always 
loved watching videos, DVDs of live comedy. We didn't have much live comedy to go to sort of growing up in Cornwall. Um, sort of the stand-ups that were around were more uh, adult humour, working men club type of acts. And it wasn't appropriate for like taking a 10 year old along to. So I'd never really seen much live stand-up. And then when I went to university up in, uh, in Leicester, uh, I started seeing, you know, people coming to the student union, doing comedy, uh, Milton Jones, um, Ed Byrne, and I, and I just, and um, who else, Harry Hill, and I just look, fell in love with the art form. And so there was a Christmas cabaret show that the student union were putting on, and they said, we'll give anyone some stage time to do whatever they want. You can sing a song, you can do a dance. They sort of went to all the performing arts sort of fa faculties and said, do what you want. And I said, well, I'll do some stand up. Never done it before. And they said, great, you've got 20 minutes. Ooh. I was like, oh, okay. That's quite a uh, chunky amount of time. But I was like, yeah, sure. So my first gig was 20 minutes in a pub, brand new material, never tried it before, in front of mostly friends. So I didn't totally die. Probably on the inside I did, but uh, it, it wasn't so bad. Um, and then, yeah, carried on from there, really kind of honed what I was doing, stripped it right down to sort of the five best minutes of that and did that around Leicester for a while and then moved to London to seek fame and fortune when I was 21. So, so yeah, just sort of fell into it, really. And when you were in London, wh what was it like back then and how has it changed now? You say that like I'm some kind of historian. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I do sound like that, don't I? <laughs> yeah, the, the vintage comedy of 2000. Um, it was different. It was different, I must admit. Uh, so from, so when I, I moved there with, a, with one of my best mates or my, my actual best mate, uh, Rob, we did a double act called Colin and Rob. I don't know how we came up with that name. Um, and... Um, we, we, we toured the double act for a lot of years in London and it was smaller. The, the scene was much smaller. There were a few sort of organisations around sort of starting up comedy nights like the Laughing Horse, which are now a big old uh, company. And they've got the Laughing Horse Free Fringe and they've got many, many venues in London that they um, put comedy nights on all the way through the year. They were just starting out. so. There was a handful of nights that you could get onto, and actually there was a big waiting list to get on those nights. So it was harder to get gigs. You had to really, really do your homework and just just really plow on, not having gigs to really practice your stuff. And so I would say the big change from 2000 until now is just the amount of opportunities there are. There are so many more nights and so many more promoters and uh, comedy clubs, the 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 chance to hone your set is is much easier now. I'm not saying doing comedy is easier, but the chances are are way more. So I think I think that's the big change. That's the big change. The amount of stuff that's going on. Yeah. And has it become more? Would you say competitive than it was? Yeah, in a way, I think. I suppose it has, 
I mean, it literally has because there are more sort of competitions around. There wasn't so many sort of comedy based competitions. They all sort of sprung up, I think, or started to spring up sort of 2004 or five, like the Moose Moose New Act and the, all those sort of um, competitions. And of course, comedy's changed. I think when when I started doing it, the idea of it leading to something like television wasn't really a thing because there wasn't as much stand-up on TV. There were, again, a few acts that sort of have made it and were on things like, I don't know, um, the Royal Variety, to say. But there wasn't these big old panel shows that was a nice place for people to go on and show their stuff. Like Mot the, Mot the Week wasn't a thing um, or any of those shows. So it's it's more competitive now because I think people want, they see that as the pinnacle, being on a panel show or being on TV, where that wasn't really in my head. Um, and you kind of did your thing. And if people didn't like it, it didn't matter because you just enjoyed doing it um, and would do it you know, live to a group of live people, which is much more fun than TV, I would think. I don't know. Maybe. I think so. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so, yeah, it probably is more competitive now, I think. But you've just got to do your thing. And, uh, you know, if, 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 that's not what, if that's not what TV wants, then probably TV is not for you, because I think there's a certain type of comedy that works well on TV. And the more alternative acts or the people who have got <clears throat> the less generic stuff maybe get forgotten about a bit for that. But that's, that's all right. As you know, it's as long as you're enjoying what you're doing, that's the main thing. Hmm. Hmm. And what questions I want to follow on from that is what was the, how did you used to develop bits before they had all these gigs? when you're building a show or building 20 minutes how did it used to work back then and what made you get when did you start be like look i just want to enjoy comedy i want to do my own thing rather than be like because i see a lot of now with a lot of comics they just want bish bosh i want to be a star i want to be <laughs> a wee wee yeah yeah well that's right it's um it is a bit like that now, isn't it? But you know, one, they, people just want to get that sort of fame and fortune. Uh, and you, you can, you can make it as a comic now. There's so many more opportunities than there was. But um, developing stuff when there wasn't the opportunities, what we actually did when, again, when I was doing the double act, more than just solo stand-up, um, me and Rob decided that the best way to guarantee that there would be nights where we could develop stuff and try stuff out and uh in front of an audience was to create our own nights so that's what we did we were based in south london in uh tooting and there wasn't much comedy happening at all around there you had the the banana cabaret in balham which was a few miles down the road and so we we set up our own nights the first night in tooting back in 2006 I think was called Comedy at the Kirk because it was at a pub called the Selkirk and it was really popular, it was a little tiny room, you could probably seat 60 people in it, above a pub and we had we had a lovely opportunity then to host it, we were the but we would get to do sort of 10-15 minutes at the top and then uh, a few, sort of another 10 minutes in the middle 
whilst emceeing and we have brilliant acts down as well like we brought loads of uh, big big names or they are big names now like greg davis and russell kane um and stephen k amos sarah pasco they all sort of did our clubs really early on and they were sort of less known um and then we moved to a bigger room in tooting and carried that on again a, a week a, every week every sunday that was called comedy trumpet uh, again in Tooting, and it was just, a, again, a chance to weekly try out stuff in front of an audience that kind of knew us and knew our style to to make sure that those gigs were there to be able to do that. So I think you've got to create your own opportunities. That's <laughs> what, what, basically what I'm saying. If yeah. the opportunity isn't there, create it and and make your own destiny like by doing that. That's what we did. Yeah. That- that definitely is something that I think a lot of comics could hear because I hear people always complaining about different things, but then they don't do anything about it. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, if the gig isn't there and there's a lack of gigs, then get together with some people and start your own night. Like, you know, that that's definitely doable in this day and age. Absolutely, absolutely. What? So one thing that I want to ask here is, What um tell so you, you what what point did you decide to go it alone and be a be a lone wolf? <laughs> be a lone wolf, yeah. Ditch Rob in a ditch. No, no. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, we were well. I don't know what at what time it was because I'd always done stand up. Uh, like I said, back when I was doing the uh, university, I'd always tried stand up on my own. It's a double act easier to do because you could bounce off the other person and try stuff out. And I, we, I really like working with Rob. But I'd always had the solo stand up in the back of my mind. And I think when I sort of came into my own doing it was when I had a sort of a big old life change. And my situation changed health-wise, and I had more stories to tell. Um, the double act stuff was just silly, very silly, non-political, non-personal stuff. It was just two men. I think the phrase is "dicking around" on stage, um, but with a mild success. But the when I had more to say as a, an individual, I. Um, I felt like that was the time to do that. And um, so 2004, I would say that I kind of stepped into the world of being a solo stand-up. And that would be when I first started having trouble with my uh, foot. Um, I was diagnosed with, I was, un- I was undiagnosed type 1 diabetic. And uh, I didn't know I was a diabetic. And I found out because my foot I had this blister that wouldn't heal and I ended up being in hospital for about six weeks and I had uh, lots of surgery on that foot and blah 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 and with all that sort of new experiences of then uh, struggling with this leg that was hugely compromised for like um, for the next sort of 10 years I just had more to say as a person and and funny things that just sort of came from that situation so 
uh, it sort of led itself on to being able to talk to an audience more in a more personal way. So that's probably when it was, I think. Yeah, situation, the situation. Yeah, you mentioned that, I think, in the other podcast that as you're, you d in some ways, what happened with your foot, did it help your comedy in a way? <laughs> yeah, yeah, where, where one foot is uh, destroyed, another door opens. Um, <laughs> yeah, I think it, I think it did help. It did help because you, you every comic kind of wants to look at the world in a different way or have things that they can talk about where, where maybe other people can't talk about. And lots of comics do it from like where they're from. They can talk about that and not everyone's from that place or their religion or uh, whatever it is, or them being, I don't know, a vegan or whatever it is, something that makes them a bit more unique. And my unique thing um, was being disabled, I suppose. And and for, for 10 years, I was on crutches and that was that brought all sorts of hilarity with it. Like, you know, things which not everyone's experienced. And um, when you go to a building and the lift's not working and blah 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 and you've got you can't do the stairs all those sort of anecdotes that not everyone can talk about and then of course I led on to actually making a decision to actually lose my leg fully in 2014 so again when you become an amputee you're even more unique there are lots of amputees there are less amputee comedians so it did help my comedy because you've then got an angle You've got a little hook. Um, and as long as you don't mind being, oh, you're that amputee comedian, then you you can go for that, you know, and tell stories that other people can't tell. So it did help. What you said there, you know how, how sometimes you get people that are very posh and middle class and they try to understand that they understand the issues of someone who's a minority and suffering yeah. racism but you can't really understand it if you are in a certain position you and, and what you said there about trying to find your own angle of yeah it's it's what you said there just sounds like like a superhero movie or something like like <laughs> it, it, you like your thing doesn't you don't find your thing your thing finds you <laughs> yeah yeah absolutely yeah the prosthetic center definitely found me god i wish i was a superhero that would be amazing i mean i can't even stand on skateboard i'd be a terrible superhero i really would <laughs> why why not maybe you'd be a reluctant sort of anti-hero in a film we got colin lego like <laughs> you mess with me son <laughs> I've, I've, I've always oh yeah i, I tell you um who uh, was who was in an action film but and played an amputee but wasn't an amputee but he was like proper action it was Dwayne Johnson the rock he was in a film I think it was called Skyscraper have you ever seen that film not yet no no oh, you, you need to he plays an amputee and he's having a very bad day his family have been kidnapped or something and they're at the top of a skyscraper and he manages to fight off all the bad guys climbing up the skyscraper and at one point he his prosthetic leg comes off because that's what happens and he manages to beat someone up with the leg 
it's just uh, that's that sort of stuff I'd like to be doing. Whereas I just sit down and watch Bargain Hunt all day. You know, I, I <laughs> just don't have that get up and go that The Rock has. Um, but yeah, yeah, it's a funny old one. Yeah. You know what's just happened? I think we just found a new bit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's funny. I, 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 again, there isn't many. I was thinking about this the other, the other day. Like I was a bit annoyed when you know, they cast someone like The Rock, what Dwayne, Dwayne at The Rock Johnson, his full title, um, to be an amputee. And I feel like you know they should probably employ an amputee actor, but there isn't many. I, I, it's just, I just couldn't, I couldn't actually name one that was like famous enough to be in a big blockbuster movie. It's funny, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Why did why didn't they get it? They should have got an amputee, why didn't they? Yeah. yeah. Well, I suppose, you know, the rock sells films. And then if you if you've got like, I don't know, Colin Lego is saving his family up a up a um a skyscraper, that's not gonna sell. It's a shame. My family would go, but that's about it. They'd sell about five tickets. Mm. It's yeah. It and that's that's what they say with um what's it called with with Edinburgh in it in a way with like um uh, Logan said there was a point where a lot of the big comics and the bigger people went up over to Edinburgh and it sort of took away a bit of the soul of it. Yeah, when you've got I think I, when I was up there in two thousand and I want to say fourteen, thirteen or fourteen, I was doing a show up there, uh, helping producers show up there. And yeah, you've got the acts sort of trying, new, newer acts sort of doing their shows and trying to sell tickets and really pushing their show. And then you're flying out in the street and you say to someone, oh, do you want to see some comedy at six o'clock? And they'll say, no, we're, we're seeing Michael McIntyre at six o'clock. They're like, what is, what's Michael McIntyre doing up here selling 20 pound tickets? It's, yeah, it, it's hard when you've got to, because again, people want to see people off the telly. And if your show is a few quid cheaper, they still won't go to it because you're not off the telly. Um, I'm not saying everyone's like that. There are a great amount of people that go to Edinburgh who do want to see new comedy, but Joe Public, I think, would rather see Michael McIntyre for 20 quid than take a chance on something for 12. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> they, they, well, it's something they can brag about to their friends easily. Yeah, it's true. By the way, I've got nothing against Michael McIntyre, but he was up there doing a show and uh, stealing all the audience. So <laughs> you, you could have, yeah. I mean, he should have. He, he should give some of his. He should mention people at the end of his shows. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A roll, a roll call of shows that people should see. That would be amazing. Yeah, mm. it would be good to see. <laughs> <laughs> now, you, you, you. You won an award, didn't you, for what's it called, Legoland? Yeah, well, yes. Yeah. So Legoland was a show I did 2015. It was uh, straight off the back uh, of losing my leg in 2014, and the show was about that decision to become an amputee because not everyone decides that kind of stuff. It's usually decided for you if you're if you've happened to be in a, I don't know, a horrific accident and lost a limb. Those decisions are made for you. But 
uh, again, a unique position of choosing something like that and then having to wait for the inevitable operation to happen. Lots of stories, so and lots of very personal insight into what that feels like, knowing you're going to lose a leg. And so I felt I'd like to write a show, and Legoland was that show. And it told the story of 10 years with this foot before losing the foot. Um, and yeah, it got nominated for uh, Best Newcomer at the Leicester Comedy Festival, which happened in February that year. And then I took it to Edinburgh. And yeah, it's got quite a nice re um, reception in Edinburgh in 2015. Uh, lots of nice reviews, lots of things came off the back of that. And I really enjoyed that year. Like some years you're in Edinburgh and it's just a slog. But that was a nice, tasty year. Because I had something to say, I think. I wasn't just doing jokes. It was a very personal show. It was funny. I think it was funny. But um, it was a, a personal show that people kind of like to hear a story that may, maybe hasn't been told that often. So, yeah, that was a, that was a good show, Legoland. I enjoyed that show. And what was it like when you had, I mean, I because I spoke to Julian Masley and when she was in the caves, she did she told them not to tell her when reviewers were going to see her show did you have a similar situation or were you like fuck it just 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 tell me when or or you saw steve bennett and that was it <laughs> or what well I, I i went up that year saying to myself i didn't want to know when reviewers were in and i wouldn't read any of the reviews if they came out i didn't want to know there was a review uh day three i was looking at all the papers i was checking emails to see where the reviewers were in i just can't help myself um and so i did know when reviewers were in usually because there had been some comp tickets or some press tickets that had been ordered and because you know i'm not a huge name you get to see all that sort of behind the scenes stuff that bigger acts might not have to deal with and so I would know when there was a reviewer in. It, it's tricky. But the, the main thing is with that, you just don't do a different show. I, I've heard acts say when a review has come out and it's been a bad review, they say, oh, I didn't know there was a reviewer in. I would have, would have done it differently. I was like, well, don't do a different show because there's a reviewer in. Just do your show well every time. Yeah. Don't have a day off doing your show uh, and go on autopilot. That's not that's not fair for that audience. So no. you've just got to do you you just got to do a hundred percent each time, and then and then it's going to be a, a, a fair review of your show, good or bad. Yeah. I, yeah. Go on. With because I hear some with some comedians they say that you have a different audience depending on the day of the week it's on. Mm. Yeah. Is that is that necessarily true? I mean. Yeah. And how do you deal with the knobheads? How did you deal with the knobheads that you got in that gig? Like the ones that would heckle or, or say weird things or... How do you stop them from derailing stuff? <laughs> well, I know, I know with Edinburgh, um, and it's a very specific world, Edinburgh. It's not like anything else. It's not like any other, or any other gig, really, because some of your audience are there because they like you as an act and that handful of people will be there and be very committed 
then you've got another handful of people who have seen your flyer and are taking a chance. So they're not maybe as committed and you've really got to win those people over. And then in Edinburgh, there are some people there who have just come out of the rain. <laughs> they're, they're the soggy looking people at the back who just want to stay dry. So it's a unique situation up there. Um, and audiences do change, especially in Edinburgh. They do change according to, yeah, the time of day and the weather. If you're doing a show at uh, one in the afternoon and it's raining, you've got an audience there who aren't really that interested. They're just staying dry. Um, and, and again, you'll get audiences who, because comedy happens all the way through the day, from 10 o'clock in the morning until two or three in the in the the next morning um you'll get audiences who don't expect you to be um sort of a full-on comedian they've, they've come to a show and maybe they've brought some kids with them and because it's like two in the afternoon and they're expecting like a more of a family friendly show and then i'm there talking about having my leg chopped off <laughs> They're, surpri they're surprised at some of the material. I'm like, it's a comedy show. It's not a kid's show, even though it's in the afternoon. Um, yeah, challenging audiences. The Like you called them, the knobheads. Um, team knobhead. Yes. Um, <laughs> third name. Yeah, that, that's the collective term, isn't it, for those people? Um, <laughs> it's a tricky one. I think uh, if, they're, if they're being... Unless they're being really... Um, disruptive I kind of let them get on with it uh, in Edinburgh anyway I was doing one one show I did was in a had a bar at the back of the room and that's the worst situation because again people can come in for the show but they can also just come in to use the bar and have a drink and then what do you do I never really worked that out because the pub or the venue have decided that that's a good situation for comedy is to have people at the bar talking. Um, you don't want to sort of have a go at those people who are at the bar talking because they've done nothing wrong. They've just come in to use the bar and that's very legitimate in this situation. I think I've had many sort of uh, heated exchanges with venues in that case when they've decided that that creates the best comedy situation because it doesn't. You know, that's, that's to do with the management rather than having a go at those people. It's a really tricky one. It's a really tricky situation. I know what you mean. I've seen it like with a couple of friends shows I watch and it's, it's bloody nightmare. And it's a bit, it's just people who are just money grabbers and they don't care. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Yes. I, I, I haven't been, oh, no one's been to Edinburgh for a few years because of what's been happening in the world. But um I don't know whether this is the case now, but there used to be so many smaller venues up there who would yeah, just sling a microphone and a, a desk lamp in a corner and call it a venue. But they hadn't really thought about the best, the best uh, situation for having an audience who are contained and not dealing with the noise from the bar. Like you, like you said, they just want to make a quick pound on the, uh, from the alcohol sales. Yeah. I, I had this like in the in the city cafe used to be good, have good rooms down there, but then they split it into so many different ones where it's very claustrophobic. And I even spoke to the past after they said they made more before before Edinburgh with the karaoke rooms than the actual comedy shows themselves. Oh right! Wow. Oh, 
I, I think it's it's sort of a vicious circle because there are so many people wanting to do a show now. And so there is the need for these rooms to exist. Uh, rather than, you know, when it was just, it was a, a less, less people going up to do shows and you could have rooms that are more spread out and not backing onto other rooms, just divided with curtains. But the need is there for these rooms. And so that's when you get situations where it's just so claustrophobic. Um, when we did a sketch show in 2007, me and a group of uh, performers, lots of who, lots of which have gone on to do um, comedy, um, Alison Thea Scott, uh, uh, Becca Shorrox, who's in Short and Curly. Um, lots of us have gone on and done comedy, but we was up with a sketch show called uh, Triple Threat. And we were at the Gilded Balloon in the main Gilded Balloon venue uh, there on Bristow Square. And our room, even though we were paying pop dollar, they say, for that room, we, we were in a room which backed on to another room. We were just, uh, it was separated with a, uh, just a curtain and it had no air conditioning. And people were walking out of our room even before the show started because they'd walk in and because it was so claustrophobic and had no windows and had been split into like these three smaller rooms, they would just walk in, it'd be like an oven and they just walk back out again. <laughs> we were like, we're paying like three grand for this room and people aren't even staying before we've started. So that's tricky. And that's one of the big venues, you know? Fuck. Yeah, I know, yeah. Yeah, I often hear the reverse, man. With the like, it's often I hear with the if you want to get a good want to get reviewed and you want to get a good review, you go into the big rooms. I think again, it's like I don't want to I don't want to say this, but I think they just get a little bit greedy and they go, the acts want the room, we can definitely charge a lot of money for this room, even though the room is now a quarter of the size of what it used to be, and there's no aircon. Like in that show, we ended up having to, when we were flyering for the show, we would, one of our selling points was we gave up free ice lollies in the show. And we had to do that. We were like, come to see the comedy. There's a free ice lolly. And there was because they said they couldn't put any air con in. They couldn't open any window because there wasn't any windows. And they couldn't open up the space because it backed onto two or three other spaces. So half the way through a show, we would have almost like a mini interval, give out free fab and rocket ice lollies, and then carry on. It was so people didn't die. We, we didn't want people passing out and dying in our show. Um, crazy. And that's one of the big old venues. Yeah. Hmm. And it's also a funny thing as well. When I looked at the last one in 2019, a lot of the people that got top reviews were all in a, in one venue, which mm. I found very interesting. Yeah, yeah, it is. It is interesting. I think I think Edinburgh uh, is a weird old beast. It's getting better in terms of reviewers are going to shows and say were free venues, and they are sort of uh, regarding those as worthy of them <laughs> reviewing them more so now, but. Yeah, being in one of the big venues does give you a little bit of a, a foot up in terms of getting those reviews early on, maybe. I don't know. I don't know. Hmm. Is, do you, 
have, in when you were up there and you got your reviewed show, did you recognise any of the reviewers viewing you, reviewing you as you're performing? <laughs> um, yes. Well, uh, so so do you mean that could I see them in the audience? Yeah, and did you did you like oh your review? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I see. Yes, uh, I don't think I actually singled them out too much. Some some reviewers are less. Uh, inconspicuous than others I, I, I remember one reviewer came in and actually I think she gave me a really nice review in the end but she she had a full-on notebook and I'm not talking about and sort of a, a small a6 notebook she had a full-on sort of a3 pad on her lap and had set up almost like one of those little lamps that you can clip onto a desk they're like a really tiny led sort of bed reading uh, lamp you know to read your book at bedtime she clipped that onto the chair in front of her and so she had like a little full office set up and so I couldn't help but notice her didn't pander to her at all I don't think but I knew what publication she was from and she gave me quite a good review some some reviewers <laughs> they try and stay inconspicuous by just doing it on their little on the phone or whatever but and you never want to pull them up you never want to single them out well i don't anyway because that can go terribly wrong mm. <laughs> if they do, if they just want to be there and uh stay and have a good show you don't want to be sort of uh, pointing them out to everyone in the room that would be awful do you just avoid eye contact with them or something or just well um not not as if they're not there because again that's not giving them the show i would normally do i do chat to the audience and i do um, uh, try and make eye contact as much as possible with the audience because I, I think you, you need those connections. So if they're staring at me and, and looking uh, back and laughing, I will uh, give them eye contact. I won't, won't blank them because they're just a human being at the end of the day. Um, and they, they need that experience of the show as is. Um, so no, I won't, I won't ignore them. I won't ignore them. But I also won't make much of them uh, in terms of talking to them. Do you know what I mean? Fine balance. <laughs> yeah, just make them part of the show, but don't yeah. pick on them and don't make them the centre of the stage because they don't want that. Yes. I mean, I know acts, uh, so Adam Riches, who, who uh, well, he directed our sketch show back in 2007 and then the next year went on to win loads of awards for his show. But he he will do the opposite. I know his his shows are very audience participation and I've seen him get reviewers up on stage and just absolutely rip them to shreds. And he, he can get away with that because I think if you go to a show where you know there's a lot of audience participation, maybe the reviewer wants that experience of being the subject of the laughter. Um, didn't do him any harm. Anyway, he got, he's got, he's had great reviews all the time, but, uh, I, yeah, I I don't do that, so that's that's not my thing. Yeah, <laughs> it's yeah. I, I mean, I saw one thing that was quite funny. I saw a video of um, some Mexican wrestler, and he was um, dry humping Hill uh, Jager. <laughs> <laughs> wow, wow, <laughs> wow! Are you sure that wasn't like some kind of dream you had? <laughs> no, no, definitely. That would be a nightmare, I think. <laughs> but no, it was some sort of YouTube video. Someone posted it on the collective and it's 
some guy dressed in a Mexican costume. He does this weird dance, and at first, Hills Jago is enjoying it, and then he gets closer to her, and then she pushes him off. <laughs> wow. Well, you, well, you've got to be confident in what you're doing to do that, I suppose. <laughs> and uh, for anyone that is listening, Hills Jago is a well-known uh, comedy competition reviewer. He amuse me it's lots of career, a lot of famous people. And she reviews a lot of Edinburgh shows. And she runs a few comedy shows. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you've got to either know her very well or be confident that she's going to want you to hunt her to actually go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Maybe she enjoyed it. I don't know. No, I mean, yeah. Whatever floats your boat. I, I, yeah, I don't know her that well to know whether she's into Mexican wrestlers humping her leg. I, I don't know. <laughs> but yeah i mean edinburgh has a lot of i mean one thing that was quite interesting last time i went there with a couple of comics mm. we we're walking around and there was this this old 40 year old 50 year old scottish man that looked like looked very rough he says hey you do you want some lsd or coke yeah, the the thing I always don't enjoy with Edinburgh, there's lots of things that I don't enjoy with the Edinburgh Festival. Lots of things are great. But the thing that always stands out in my head is if you stay a day too long. So I've always been up, I've always gone up there. And if I'm there, I'm doing the whole festival. I'm not there for a week or you know, 10 days. I do the whole three weeks. And I always forget that if you stay a day too long and see the city when everything's being taken down and all the posters are being ripped down by the council and all the stands have gone away Edinburgh then sort of opens up again and all the locals kind of come out of the woodwork um, and and there are some uh, Edinburgh's a lovely city but I think the some of the angrier locals <laughs> who have maybe had their bars taken over by all us comedians and all us sort of people up there on holiday they're now sort of angry and excited to be back in the streets so it's a bit like a ghost town it's a bit sort of like um something out of the the walking dead <laughs> the edinburgh the post uh, festival the day after the festival's finished it's a bit of an odd situation what's a situation that bears memory for you <laughs> what in edinburgh um of that oh, oh of that um <laughs> uh let me well i know i know um we were in a fish and chip shop once and i think it was the festival was coming to an end and we went into a fish and chip shop and this is me and rob when we were doing the double act and up in scotland if you've never been to scotland if you order food from a fish and chip shop everything comes in twos so you order fish and chips, you get two bits of fish and chips. If you order sausage and chips, you get two sausages and chips. Everything is doubled. I don't know why. It just is. They like their heart disease, I think. And um, Rob ordered fish, uh, sausage and chips. He ordered sausage and chips. And as he took it outside, he didn't. He had two sausages. So he took his sausage. He took it back in. It, thinking he was being nice and said to the woman behind the counter you've given me too much food and the guy that was in the restaurant 
uh, not the restaurant, the guy that was in the takeaway, getting his chips beside us, a local, got really offended on her behalf and was like, if you don't like your food, you can fuck off back to London. I was like, I mean, it's not that we don't like the food. We just, there's too much of your food. You've given us too much food. Then take it and fuck off back to London then. Got really sort of aggressive that we had an extra sausage. <laughs> yeah. And then you gave him the sausage. <laughs> well, I think... <laughs> no, no, no. What have I said? No. <laughs> Uh, yeah, uh, yeah, it's funny. I, I don't, I don't know what happened to that sausage. I think we probably just ate it. <laughs> <laughs> probably, probably. Uh, it's, but it, one one thing that I've always found interesting is a lot of a lot of comics always talk about there's comedians that they will chat to in London, have a conversation with, but they'll just ignore them whilst they're in Edinburgh, and I find that a bit. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a bit mad seeing everyone you know all over the place again and again and again. And yeah. it's a bit, what would you say is the key to sorting out the madness? <laughs> uh, oh, that's a big question, isn't it? That sounds like that sounds like something that Boris Johnson has been asked recently, uh, but not about Edinburgh, obviously. Um, <laughs> gosh, yeah, it is. That is true. The you 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 have friends on the comedy circuit that you work with all the time and you see at various comedy clubs oh my cat is now joining me your your listeners Hello. can't see that but my cat has now joined me um so rosie the cat will now be part of this interview yeah. um she did a show at the gilded balloon a few years ago went terribly didn't it rosie yeah <laughs> <laughs> um so you see you, you see comedians up in edinburgh and like you said they you sort of ignore each other or the conversation goes, if, if you met someone in London and it's a comic that you know, you see him on the street and you go, oh, how are you? And you go, oh, yeah, I'm fine. Yeah, I've had a cold or, you know, I've just moved house. So you, you talk about life stuff, you know, and you actually find out a bit about how that person is. In Edinburgh, because it's that sort of three week condensed bubble of craziness, every conversation is you see someone that you know really well, comedian, you say, oh, how are you? And they go, oh yeah, I got four stars. <laughs> and every conversation is about that, is about Edinburgh. Oh, how are you? Oh yeah, I just had a reviewer in. There's no actual talk about human existence. It's all about your show. So I think uh, to sort out the madness for any comedians who are up there, if someone asks you, how are you? Tell them how you are. Don't talk about how your reviews are going or if you've got four stars or five stars. Actually have a human conversation because that's what I miss when I'm up there is actual human contact. You don't you don't talk to humans. You talk to comedians in comedian mode. Um, and that's not healthy. <laughs> that isn't healthy. Uh, you need humans up there. <laughs> hmm. So you're, you're saying also take yourself when you're up there spend some time away from comedy as well oh yeah 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 because scotland is a lovely place and uh there's you know on your day off because people if they're doing a week a three week run they normally have a day or two maybe two days in that three weeks they have it off and, and just to have, have take that time off go go and visit and somewhere like um 
I think, uh, where, what's down the road? Musselburgh is just down the road. That's a lovely seaside town that you can visit. It's only about sort of 40 minutes on the train or go on one of the excursions to Loch Ness or whatever it is. Just get out of Edinburgh and have a day off. Don't, I mean, people have their day off and they see other people's shows because it's their only day that they can do that. But I think you need to switch off away from the festival, away from the, the madness. Uh, that's what I've always done. And it's been a real sort of uh, you pressing the restart button on being human, <laughs> you know, get away from it all. Then go back and do another week or 10 days of being crazy again. But Scotland's a lovely place. Yeah, it really is nice. And um, if you've never been to Scotland or have only been to Scotland for the Edinburgh Festival, go and see Scotland when the festival isn't on. And it's even nicer. That's what I would say. I sound like I'm trying to sell Scotland. I have nothing to do with the Scottish Tourist Board. It's just a nice place. <laughs> Apart from Glasgow, I don't know. <laughs> well, <laughs> again, don't say they've given you too many sausages in Glasgow. Uh, they don't like that. Yeah. <laughs> no, it, it, it is a great festival and it's great for getting better as a comedian. But it's yeah, there is a lot of things, I think could be yeah it's uh, there's a lot of those of I, I see some people going in oh it's going to be my big thing oh it has to be this it has to be that whoa, 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 whoa. and they're tensed up like they need to have a shit <laughs> which is sometimes tricky during the festival because uh all the pubs are closed and loose to make them into venues <laughs> <laughs> that's true <laughs> um yeah, you have realistic expectations, people. That's what you've got to have. You, when I, I, I'm, I'm a culprit of it. Like, I, my first Edinburgh was 2003. Again, we had a sketch show. It was called Insert Punchline here. Um, fairly, fairly successful, but again, uh, we were, we were young and had ridiculous expectations. We, we thought, you know, you go up there with a show. We're definitely going to get nominated for the big comedy award. We're definitely going to get a TV series. Uh, and none of that happened. Um, I think we had one nice review. And, and, it, and if that's your expectation, to get one good review, that is a brilliant expectation to have. I know it sounds like I'm being a killjoy, and why shouldn't you reach for the stars? But also, you will feel crushed every day if that thing doesn't happen um so go up there with a, a sort of realistic uh, expectations of getting a nice five-star review or maybe meeting someone who might become a, an agent or you know getting your photo in in the three weeks magazine whatever it is and then if other things come extra then that's a bonus but yeah, you can just be up there crying every night in your pillow if you haven't, you know, uh, received a comedy award or no one's come to your show to review it. Yeah, yeah. It's not good for your mental health. <laughs> but, no, I mean, and also with regarding, like, if you're tensing you the shit, you could always just do it with Victorian way and just let it out on the street and make it part of the end of a show. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it is definitely, and it's it's <laughs> one of the good, what you said there is definitely true, going with realistic expectations and enjoy it rather than... Yeah, enjoy it. 
enjoying it, have that as your goal. Go up and enjoy the fact that you're getting to perform your set or your routine or whatever it is every day. That is an amazing, um, amazing situation to be in. Not everyone can do that. And that that's enjoyment enough. I, that, that sounds like I'm, you know, I'm putting people saying that nothing else will happen, but definitely go up there, A, enjoying it. That's got to be the main thing. Not getting an agent, not getting TV work, not getting uh, a, a nomination, because those things will happen uh, if you're enjoying your show and and people can see you're enjoying your show, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And that's what you had with your show, because it meant so much to you and it had a lot of energy. You had a lot of energy in it. Yes. It was something I was proud of and something that I think people could see that um, the story itself was was something that I was proud to tell and wanted to tell. Um, and again, like, like you know, uh, on the ba- on the back of Legoland, I ended up sort of veering off and doing other things. But uh, in t- in terms of, it started off as a comedy show, and then um, people could some people came along to it, and I made connections because uh, of the more medical side of it. So. Um, from Edinburgh, I went on to then be invited to the what was it called? The it was called the amp, not the amputees. It was some medical thing uh, in Rome, where I then got to do my stand-up routine about losing a leg, and it, I I still saw it as like a stand-up comedy routine, but it was to a room full of surgeons, leg surgeons. It was called something like the Amputee Symposium, the International Amputee Symposium. It was basically all the, the, the big surgeons in the whole world got together in Rome. And I was almost like the patient's voice because I'd experienced losing a leg, talking a doctor into uh, having my leg amputated. They were interested in that story. So they invited me out to Rome to do that. And then from that, I went to and did the same talk at The Hague. Um, And so, yeah, if it's something that you're if it's something that you're proud on presenting, things will happen. Things will happen. (laughs) One second, Colin. Uh, He's he's gone out and I'm in the podcast. You can say hello if you want. <laughs> okay, okay. <laughs> okay, that's. Uh, I I got most. I got. <laughs> I got some of it. I got some of it, but I didn't get all of it. That's all right. That's all right. You want to so, go back on some of that? Yeah, let's go back on some of that. Okay. Um, I'll just say it all again, basically. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, I think if you've got something that you're proud to be saying and uh, want to say to an audience, that sort of, they definitely latch onto that more and, and things come off the back of that. So when I was doing Legoland, um, because it was a very personal story, um, people wanted to hear that more in different situations. So there was a doctor or or someone connected to the amputee world that came to the show 
just on a whim, really. They saw on my flyer that I was there with a prosthetic leg and they made the connection that it was part of their kind of world. So they came along not knowing me as a comedian at all. And they found they found the show funny, but they also found it quite personal and, and an interesting story. And so then I got invited to go to Rome, uh, all, all inclusive, all flights paid for, all that kind of thing. Felt like a megastar. Um, I went to Rome and it was it was called something like the the uh, Surgeons Symposium, the International Surgeons Symposium. Is that the right word? Symposium? I don't know. I think that's the word. Like a meeting of minds of all these surgeons from around the world who were to do with orth um, prosthetics and orthotics. And I basically did Legoland, the whole show, uh, to a, this massive room full of some of the best surgeons in the world. And they found it funny, but they also found it um, quite interesting because I was, the, I was the patient. I was there as a patient's voice, something they'd never had before at this thing. Um, in all the years they've been doing it, they never had someone come to talk to them who's been in the situation where they've had to choose to lose a leg. And thrown into that, obviously, I'm doing it in a funny, or hopefully funny way, an interesting way. And so that was great. And, um, and then I went and did the same talk at another convention for the NHS in Malvern. There was another sort of big uh, international foot conference. These things exist. The international foot conference exists. Um, and, and so you just never know what's going to happen from your show. As long as you've got an interesting show, these crazy things will, will come about that you never thought would happen to you. Um, and so that's been really nice, doing, doing the show in different ways to different audiences, you know? And do you, even though it was like maybe about six years ago, something like that, do you still use bits of it now in your material? Or like, have you, do you still get things from that now? Yeah, I do. Yeah, the thing that I kind of do now... Um, as, as I do a lot more sort of one-liner stuff now and puns and that kind of thing, which we'll probably talk about at some point. But um, the thing with the leg, because that was a choice that I had to make to really do what do I become disabled full time? I had to make that choice. Um, I now use that story to do talks to sixth form colleges and university. Uh, groups um, on sort of making life choices and not having any regrets. So I can go into a sixth form lecture and I, and I'm, I get asked to do this talk quite a lot. It's called um, uh, Choices, Decisions and Regrets is the talk. And I can go in and be like Mr. Funny <laughs> and do bits of stand up to kind of get the, to get the students on my side. But then you talk about uh, how I made some really stupid decisions in my life to do with my health and that's why I ended up with foot problems and then uh, making the correct decision to lose the leg and the only way I could make that decision to become a full-time amputee was having done the research into what that's like. So I met other amputees, I went to the rehab centre in um, 
in Roehampton for a day and met surgeons and people going through rehab who had just lost a leg. I'm, I, you know, I, I talked to a lot of people and I, and I just had the insight to make a sort of a good qualified um, decision before jumping into anything. So I kind of linked that to life choices. It sounds a little bit kind of teachery, but I say to them, you know, if you're going to make, if you've got the opportunity to do something which you think might not be a good decision, whether it's like going with someone or taking some substance or doing something illegal, you can do those things, but but make sure you've thought about it before you do it. So, so you know whether it's a good decision or not. You still might end up wanting to do those things, but think about it before you do it. Um, so I use the leg in that way. And I also talk to, to young guys about their, about their physical health as well. Because when I was 23 and I was, I was super ill, if looking back, I was really ill, not knowing I was a diabetic but a type one diabetic, but I, I did know in the back of my mind, if I think about it now, I, I knew something was wrong. Like I'd lost a lot of weight. I uh, was, was really weak and kind of not myself, but I ignored it, I ignored it, I ignored it. And then I, I only came about finding out I was diabetic because of my foot had this blister that would not heal. And that's how I found out. So I say to young guys in these kind of sixth form centers and the universities you know you've got to look after yourself because you know if I do have a regret it's the fact that I didn't listen to my body back when I was 23 telling me that I was ill because if I had done that and I had gone to a doctor and said what's going on I've lost loads of weight for no reason then I would still have my leg so even though I make the most of my situation now I don't have to be in this situation. I could have changed that uh, 20 years ago by listening to my body. So I say that to these guys. Um, and I think that's kind of interesting for them to hear, someone who's experienced that. So yeah, the comedy comes into it a little bit, but it's more about life choices. Hmm. And that's, that's, yeah. And that can, no, I mean, and, and have, uh, what's what's been examples where it's had an you've seen an impact on people and they've changed as a result well i i did the talk um it was before lockdown now so everything's pre and uh pre and before lockdown isn't it um so it was tw uh, 2019 i think i did the talk in a school in greenwich uh i did it for did it for two years consecutively so i did the talk in maybe 2018 this talk to the sixth formers and lots of them came up afterwards and said it was they enjoyed it and they wanted to know more about um my story and that kind of thing which is a wonderful but I went back a year after and did the talk again to the next cohort of sixth formers and one of the teachers so I think he was like the deputy head of sixth form he had seen the talk uh the year before and he'd come back to hear it again. I, don't, I didn't really change the talk much. There was a few added bits of stand-up uh, at the start and at the end, but the main gist was the same. And he said that after my talk, even though he was a guy in his 30s, he kind of took on board what I was saying about listening to your body. And he had a niggling uh, issue that, uh, with, with some of his health 
um, and he didn't feel right. So his breathing didn't feel right and that kind of thing. So on the back of my talk, he did go to the doctor and he did, he turned out that he had a slight uh, medical condition, but the fact that <laughs> he said I sort of inspired him to check that out meant that it was now under control and he was taking some medication and hopefully, you know, this breathing problem that could have escalated and become something horrendous was now being looked at by a doctor. So it's nice when you hear things like that, that you have actually had a direct impact on people thinking. So yeah, that, that was, that was nice. That was nice. There's a thing in there with, they say that with us as men, we tend to downplay a lot of things. And we, you know, if we have a little niggle here and there, we won't go and see the doctor. But this is going like generally, mm. whilst ladies will go and see a doctor about those things. Yeah, there was some, I use some of these sort of facts and figures when I do this talk. And uh, they, they say that the girls and, and women are more likely to, yes, like you said, chat to their friends or chat to their mum about things that aren't right and that if they feel ill, whereas guys will definitely not talk to their mates about it because I think there's that whole culture of, you know, people taking the piss. If you feel unwell, your mates will just take the piss out of you. So why would you put yourself in that vulnerable position of talking about it? Uh, and people won't talk to their partner about it and they definitely won't go to a doctor. So yes, a huge percentage of young men, especially young men, uh, won't won't talk about it, which is crazy because we're all human. We've all got, you know, things which can go wrong with our bodies, and um, and I and I learned that to my own sort of, um, you know, my own uh, problem. My problems have come through through not not uh, facing that. I, I now face everything head on. I'm, I'm like I'm the opposite now. I, if I if I think there's an issue, I definitely attack it straight away. But I didn't, and um, you know, hmm. and with all of yeah. So is that that's and that's the biggest life lesson you've learned through everything all. From from yeah, that's the yeah. I think in life generally, you you can't you can't shy away from things. You've got to attack them, and you've also got to not be afraid of making decisions difficult decisions you have to do that in life and if if you if you you've just got to be able to do the research and and then make an informed decision you can't you can't hide away from things and carry away from things because problems don't go away they just get worse <laughs> so uh, you know make a decision make it quickly but make it with an informed state of mind i would say and that's my biggest thing i've learned in life yeah okay and this is gonna be a strange segue but we're gonna do it anyway <laughs> let's do it um what how did you i don't know how to segue into this but how, how did you get into the world of puns and what made you choose to be a punk comedian? This, I don't know how to go oh, in. Um, I'll, I'll segue us in. I'll segue us in. Um, well, I lost um, I lost my leg. And then I didn't do any one-liner jokes about it for a while because I was still finding my feet. 
there we go. Um, yeah, how did I get into puns? Well, I tell you what, pe- people ask me this in interviews and things. Uh, I think I grew up with puns is, is the is the answer. I was, I've always been involved and always had them in my life. My dad, who I now um, uh, spend a lot more time with now I've moved to Cornwall again, um, he is he he loves a one-liner. He loves a, a dad joke, and so I grew up with that sense of humour. I'd always uh, told uh, jokes or puns to my friends. Uh, annoyingly, I think they'd probably say I was quite annoying when, when I'm in uh, social situations. That's how I uh, I deal with social situations: is I make ridiculous one-liner jokes, and I'd always had the a little bit splattered around in my stand-up but it was only I think uh, there was a night called the pun run which used to be run by a fantastic comedian called Beck Hill in London and she had a regular night called the pun run which I just discovered by accident when I was I think it was around 2010 something like that and I decided that I would put together a set of, of uh, three or four minutes of actual just one-liners and try it out at the pun run. And that went really well. And so I decided then that I would kind of focus on that a little bit more and uh, extend that set and write jokes every day. That's what you've got to do when you're a one-liner comedian is make sure you write jokes every day, whether they're terrible or end up being good. Get get writing every day and write some jokes so I've, I've done that ever since and so that sort of build up and built up and then I uh, found out about the UK pun championships which started I think in 2014 um, and I, the first time I entered that was in 2017 and for that you need to apply and then get sort of uh, whittled down final eight people and the eight of you then compete in a live tournament at the Leicester Comedy Festival at the Montfort Hall in a boxing ring a kind of gladiatorial style you're punning off between you and another person and they whittle the eight of you down to four and then down to two and then the winner of that wins the wins the um the title so I entered in 2017 didn't do brilliantly um, was in the final eight, did the final show, but didn't get past round one. Then I think the next year I did a little bit better. And then in 2019, from, from just trying to do it for the last two or three years and knowing how the show works, I ended up winning the title in 2019. So for that year, I was a UK pun champion, which, which brings with it all the accolades you would imagine, which is not many. Because <laughs> usually you go, I'm the UK pun champion, and someone the first thing they say is, "Is that a thing? You're the, you're the what? Is that a real thing?" But it was, yeah, it's the, it's a real thing. Um, yeah, it's a nice title to have. It's a silly title to have, but uh, yeah, it's good. I, I and I, I enjoy writing jokes every day, like I say. And what what is the secret to writing a good pun? What is how? what's what's your what's what's without going into too much of the ketchup sauce what's the what's the secret to a good pun so um well there's a few there's a few things that there's a few no-nos 
if you're too specific, if you're if your pun is too specific and niche, that's not going to work. <laughs> However, if you're too generic and too obvious, someone's clearly done that pun before you. So there's there's a little tiny window that you've got to jump in, which is people can go, oh, I, I get that because I understand the reference, but it's not too overdone. <laughs> it's, a, it's a tricky one. But I think I think the the main key to writing a good joke is to write many, many, many jokes. And then out of those jokes, you will be able to find the good ones. You've got to weed your way through all the other nonsense that you've written and find those good jokes. So it's quantity. You've got to do quantity to find the quality. Hmm. I think. Yes. Yeah. Okay, you basically you've basically said that about um, mining gold, go to a lot yeah. of ditches and then you find it. That's it. That is absolutely it. And the nice thing um, is you can find out if a joke works or not by putting it out there online. So Twitter, um, I don't, I know not so many people are on Twitter now. They've moved on and they're doing different things like uh, Instagram and TikTok and that kind of thing. But Twitter is always a good uh, realm to find out whether or not a joke at least gets some traction. And and you've got the, the thing of it having to be short. So they work well, the puns. So if you want to try out a pun, it's not going to harm you if you put it out there and put one of the tags. You know, I know people do... Um, lunchtime puns that's a thing and one pun is another hashtag and then you just find out whether people like it or not and share it around and if they do great if they don't it doesn't matter <laughs> it's not gonna affect your set or not at all so that's a good way to try things out and that's what i tend to do now and again is put something out on twitter and see if it sticks yeah how do you make pun writing jokes of a fun bit of the day where you go like oh i can't wait for it well, what I do is I uh, I tend to uh, pick a topic or a subject that I don't know much about. So the other day I thought I would try and write jokes about cricket because I don't know anything about cricket. But, um, you know, it, 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 lots of people do. That's what I'm talking about. You know, something that's not too niche. People will get so I uh, sort of start and try and think about things I do know about cricket. I know there's bats involved. I know people run around. Let's see, you can tell I don't know anything about cricket. Um, but then that makes me go online then and find out the terminology uh, when you're playing that sport and famous people who have played that sport and what's involved in the rules and try and pick out words from that subject that I can then bend and twist and manipulate into puns and make those words sound like other words. So I enjoy doing it because you find out a lot about that subject. You know, your, your pub quiz knowledge also gets a good um, top up because you find out more about that subject than you knew before. Ah. Yeah. So it's an excuse to learn more. 
yeah i think it is yes if because you never know when you're going to need a pun about cricket you like you know you never know when you're going to need a pun about um kings and queens of england so if you've gone and researched those kings and queens and you know that you're gonna you don't know when you're gonna need a joke about henry the eighth but you've got that knowledge in there somewhere so yeah it's an excuse to learn things definitely yeah it's a bit what you did there is a bit like the law of attraction or the why like the the why you do something there and yeah. you that's what you've put there that's what you do you because you're excited to learn so that's why you yes yeah, I know what you mean. I know what you mean. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And following on from that, you also have an interesting bit of you being the Cornish connoisseur, as it were. Do, do you know of the chicken connoisseur? I do. I do. Yeah, <laughs> I do. Uh, do. Yeah, am I a connoisseur? Well, I know what you're referring to is I do um, a YouTube series called King of the Crib. And uh, do you but do you know what crib is? Can I can I ask you that? Do you know what crib is? I'm afraid I <laughs> I, I know that a crib is supposed to be like I've seen the TV show. Oh, well, that yes. So there's like MTV cribs, yeah. which is like houses where idiots live. <laughs> yes, pretty much. <laughs> Complete morons. How much of an idiot am I? Well, I've got gold lampposts. Um. No, well, in this in this um, situation, crib is a Cornish word for like a nice bit of food mid morning. So uh, I, I was told this the other day by my dad. So so if you're out in the fields working, like people were in Cornwall many 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 years ago, crib would be the thing you have between breakfast and lunch to kind of keep you going. Um, so it's called crib. So I like a bit of uh, uh, alliteration. So King of the Crib sounded like a uh, name for a YouTube series. And now it means that I go around Cornwall on people's suggestions, trying out cafes and little restaurants, independent places, um, street food that they suggest. And I go there, I give it a rating and I film it all and I get to eat nice food. <laughs> that's Ooh. one of the main reasons to do it <laughs> and and do 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 they give it to you for free because you're giving uh, free promotion so far it's been a mixture of things so when it first started out no one knew i was doing it so it was just out of my own pocket but then i've, I've had companies sort of approach me and want me to try out their their goods so there was a company that sent me a box, and I mean a full-on box full of baked goods. There was Cornish pasties, traditional Cornish pasties. They're all sort of frozen, and then you cook them in the oven, uh, just so I would promote their company. Um, but in that, that was a heart attack box, that was. It was really nice, but if I'd eaten the whole box, I would no longer be with us. There was like four or five traditional Cornish pasties, there was pasta, pizza pasties, chicken tandoori pasties, and then loads of other sausage rolls and pies. It was, you know, it was a full-on <laughs> box of high cholesterol. But amazing. Really tasted nice. But, um, yeah, they sent me that. That was quite nice. So, And how long did it take for you to eat it? <laughs> <laughs> well, for the video, I cooked, I think I cooked about five or six of the 
products and um, me and me and my girlfriend didn't eat all of that baking but we had most of it in about an hour um, and then the rest of the box stayed in the freezer for a while and we slowly got through it um, I mean how much pastry can one man eat that the answer is uh, not that much without feeling sick um, but they they were a very nice pasty company don't get me wrong but um, I think one large pasty is enough for anyone really <laughs> really if we're being honest it's enough to fill you for at least your lunch absolutely enough for your crib I mean and if you, again if you eat too much crib you're not going to then go back in the field and pull a plow or whatever you're doing back in the 1800s uh, so so yeah I mean I, I've always been a fan of the Cornish pasty I know that's a bit of a stereotype for a Cornishman to say but always been a fan always been a fan so um so yeah it's nice having this little excuse to eat things like that again and it's 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 grown it's grown quite a bit over the years hasn't it and, and you've got this you had this big viral hit called grand theft Cornwall. Cornwall. is that right yeah yeah so yeah th that that went I, I used the word viral but that did go viral um that was a a bit of a Cornish take that I did on Grand Theft Auto when Grand Theft Auto the the game uh, Grand, Theft, Grand Theft Auto 5 came out I did a parody of that <laughs> have you ever played Grand Theft Auto oh brilliant game yeah right um uh, some might argue that it's uh, slightly violent <laughs> um, like so yeah there's a bit of that going on and I just thought it would be funny if this game was set somewhere a bit more sort of tame and a bit more friendly like Cornwall. So I took the game footage, just put some voices over it as if it was a happy day in Cornwall. When when people are walking around looking for gun shops, I changed that for them looking for pasty shops and just the little conversations you hear in Cornwall about there being no parking in the summer uh, because of all the tourists and that kind of thing. And yeah, the, the, somehow the Cornish seemed to like that. And then the national press picked up on this fact that there was a Cornish version <clears throat> of Grand Theft Auto. <laughs> um, and that got loads of uh, views, ridiculous amount of views. And again, helped the comedy, helped my stand up because then people down here knew me as the Grand Theft Cornwall guy and so would book me to do my stand-up. So that was a nice little spin-off from that that I didn't expect. Oh, I've just <clears throat> got an image in my head of like the Grand Theft Cornwall comedy tour. <laughs> pasty tour, pasty tour. The that, pasty that. tour. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a strange one though because people who know you from YouTube um, then come and see your live show, which obviously isn't YouTube. And some of the things you I do on, on my YouTube channel, you can't do in a live setting because it involves editing and it involves footage and cutaways and that kind of thing. And just some people don't understand that. So then they see you doing stand-up and they enjoy it, but they're like, oh, I wish you'd done the bit about Grand Theft Cornwall. I'm like, that's a video. I can't, you know that's not a live set it's it's a it's a weird old one yeah that transition would you do it at the start maybe do a little rap or something <laughs> yeah, that's true that, yeah i could do i could do i did one gig at falmouth university 
a few years ago and they said we'll book you to do a show however you've got to put this video in and that video in like they 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 want to be just to show some of my videos from youtube which i did which i did um yeah there's definitely a crossover i'm sure that could happen yeah like you said no it's brilliant it's it's but it's 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 something that you're passionate in and it's something that it's i mean it's got you've got a few subscribers on it already and mm. could it could you, would you get the ten thousand? I mean, that's no. There you go. There you go. That's that's the dream. I actually watched a video earlier today of a competitive eater. I think he's called a uh, beard. Beard meets food, or beard man meets food. He's a. You should look him up on YouTube. He's he's a competitive eater, a UK based. Um, competition eater and he, he is a very slight slim gentleman but he can eat so much food and he was eating a cake that he had made or had someone make because he had got to i think uh, a million subscribers on his channel and he ate this massive cake <laughs> because that's what he does he just eats food um a gold cake that looked like the plaque you get when you get a million subscribers. Yeah, maybe one day I'll, I'll have a massive pasty made <laughs> for, for a million subscribers and I'll have to eat it in some way or other. I don't know. A gold pasty. <laughs> maybe. Oh, that, that would be something. Oh, look. <laughs> gold pastry. I'm sure you can get edible gold pastry. I'm going to look into that later. <laughs> oh, when you get the 10,000 subscribers and everyone's there, big clap. Thank you, guys. It's a golden pasty. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah. I'm now going to eat it. Yeah. I, I, yeah, it's funny. YouTube, I, I do end up watching a lot of nonsense now that I do the, the food channel. Um, and there are so many people out there reviewing food. It's a, a bit of a phenom phenomenon. Is that the right word? Uh, it's one of those things. At the moment, there's a lot of food channels around. Yeah, like uh, Uncle Roger, his study. Uncle Roger? Who's Uncle Roger? Nigel Erner. He he basically does his alter ego and he reviews Chinese food. Okay. And he, he jumped from like 4,000 subscribers last year to like now he's got 4 million. <laughs> and it's because it, it, one of the BBC food chefs was making rice the wrong way. The non-Asian way, so a lot of Asians are all, you know, we're quite emotional about our rice and Asian way of cooking, and it's yeah, what well, it's he he's quite clever with some of the bits of it. What he does is when he wants to get when he's close to a certain point, like before he got to four million, he says, "Right, guys, if you subscribe and get to me to four million, I will cook my own ramen." Okay. Right, right. So it's like a little tantalizing reward if you subscribe, you get to see him cook some rum. Yeah, to get him different milestones, and that's that's yeah. It's but YouTube's and in YouTube with YouTube that's going to last forever for a very long yeah. time. But with TikTok, I'm not too sure. I think it may already be starting to die out. Well, I've never got on board with it. I need to get on board that train before it dies out. I know com some comedians have really used it to their advantage because it's a nice little, you know, sound bite or clip you can have. I've never, never got onto it. 
Mark Simmons has made quite a bit from it. Um, there's a guy called Isaac HB, which no one really knew if he was just an open micer. And now he's got a million point two subscribers and now he's got 10,000 subscribers on YouTube. Boom. Wow. Wow. I hope that translates for people into, you know, proper income or like a, a audience when they get out and about live. I know um, Frizz Frizzle. Do you know Frizz Frizzle? Um yeah. He's a he's a great comedian that does lots of musical comedy. And I know he sort of has been going for a long time and, and, and won awards in, in Leicester and stuff and has had Edinburgh shows. But he discovered TikTok during lockdown. And because he does lots of parody music things, that works really well on TikTok. And again, he's yeah got lots of subscribers on there. And, and I hope that translates into people coming to see his shows because that would be great for people yeah the only thing that i am a bit iffy about if someone does get a big subscriber is if their stand-up isn't up to that level because that that is that's the only thing you know you may have a lot of followers but if you've only been gigging for a couple of years and you're not that level yet it's it's is it going to be a good thing for your audience or for comedy itself because you're going to set a bad precedent true yeah that is that is very true yeah but yeah, it's it's there's so many ways to get comedy out there now. But I think you're right. YouTube is going to be one of these things that runs and runs and runs. I mean, I've I've heard my stepdaughter's eleven, and you sort of um, you talk about you know I always say, oh, what do you want to be when you grow up? Or and she's got friends who will happily say they want to be a YouTuber, and that's an actual sort of uh, thing that people want to be now is a YouTuber. Yeah, you never used to have that. There'd be, oh, I'm a pilot, I want to be a footballer, I want to be yeah. this. Yeah, and now people want to be a YouTuber or an influencer or something to do with gaming, but gaming on YouTube. It's a, <laughs> it's an actual profession because you can make decent money from it. It's just very hard to get into that world, I think. Because so many people have done it before and now the gap's a lot smaller. Absolutely, absolutely um and yeah you're not going to make instant money overnight from youtube um because it's all about sponsorship and adverts and that kind of thing yeah but youtube pays a lot more than tiktok uh, yes yeah they do they do um that's true i don't know who owns tiktok is it is it youtube or is it i don't know how that works is it facebook it's, it's chinese and it, people are a bit skeptical of it because of China with Hawaii. I don't know how to say that phone's name. Huawei or what? Hawaii. Hawaii. Is it Hawaii? Yeah, that's that's the one. I, I yeah. And they're like tapping their phones, hacking systems, getting the security, and they're using a lot of Western technology. So I mean, it's yeah, it's. I mean, it's good to get a following, but there are some suspicions in there. China's dominant. China's and. Um, Actually, I'm not going to say anything because no, no, I can't say anything. No, no. <laughs> They're listening to us. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> we take it all back. <laughs> well, this is this is a this is a Zoom is Chinese as well, so they're listening now. <laughs> oh no! We just put ourselves right in. Oh no! This could be the end of it. Oh well. I'm, I'm I'm deleting this. Don't worry, guys. <laughs> uh, well, 
I just want to say um, it's been a lot of fun having you on, Colin. Thanks. For... Oh, thank you. I, 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 I can chat and chat and chat to people about comedy. So thank you for having me on and giving me the chance to, again, chat, because I, I don't mind chatting. <laughs> it's always good. The podcast is a different kind of chat, though. I feel you can get to know someone more so than in a comedy gig. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's, it's nice to... Um, yeah like i said talk to you about things and uh and you you know hearing hearing stuff that you want to hear about so yeah thanks for having me on and one of the things i want to say is like what would you like to plug on the podcast and make people aware of all right well if people want to go and look at my face going around cornwall talking about cornwall and then they can go to my youtube channel which uh is they just search colin lego so colin has got one l Lego has got two G's, uh, not it's said the same as the plastic brick, but it's spelled differently. Uh, L E double G O. So Colin Lego on YouTube, or if it's easier, they can go to colinlego.co.uk, and that's my website. And then that will that will uh, post them in uh, to any direction, YouTube or my podcast that I do. Um, that's the best place, really. Or they can find me on Twitter. I'm on the old-fashioned Twitter at Colin Lego ah all right so and guys make sure you follow colin uh leave a review on itunes subscribe um yeah it's been a lot of fun and hopefully i'll see you a gig soon colin yeah let's when the world is more open and gigs are happening i'm sure i'll bump into you very soon